Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. Let's dive in. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. Today we continue our adventure on DevSecOps, on agreeing and disagreeing with a good friend of mine that we had long discussion about this topic and we said this is a perfect topic to go on a podcast and hence why uh, we're doing the podcast today. So I'd like to welcome everybody and today we have as a Fabulous guest, Larry. I'm gonna try to it in English and then in Italian, Macaroni, and then in Italian for friends uh, is Macaroni. That's the Axis of Com- Comcast. He has done a series of RSA talks. That's how we, we start getting together on how to measure everything in DevSecOps and what is the feedback on that that I really really like. And then we start a very interesting conversation that I'd like everybody to hear. Hence the podcast. But before further ado, Larry, welcome to the show. Frank, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm super glad to be here. Brilliant. And uh, Larry, for who doesn't know you, how did you, get, how did you get involved into cybersecurity? How did you grow into this crazy field? Um, it's, a, it's an interesting path because I was a serial entrepreneur. I started my first business while I was still an undergrad at Virginia Tech studying electrical engineering. And we did process controls. We our biggest client was GE power generation. So at one point we were producing controls for machines that were generating 60% of the world's power. So if there was a vulnerability in something we had done, then the bad guys could literally bring down the world's power power grid. And so we had to assure that we were producing essentially defect-free software because way back then, I I actually sort of came to the conclusion that security is an attribute of quality and you can't have high security software. The software can't be highly secure unless it's also got very high levels of quality. And so defect-free of vulnerability is just a particular kind of defect. So we realized that, that 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 capability, the ability to produce essentially vulnerability and defect-free software was something that a lot of people wanted. So I had my second company was a spin out of that. And we packaged that up as a product that we sold, a software and consulting product that we sold. And then Carnegie Mellon got wind of this framework and said, come to Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie Mellon University is where, for those of you that don't know, is where the Software Engineering Institute is, where a lot of of the best software engineering research in the world is is going on. And, And I went there because I wanted to help change the world. And I was the founding director of this thing called the Scilab there. And we spun out a, a, a framework called Build Security In, which was essentially the framework I had packaged up uh, before for my first startup. And, and uh, yeah, well, that's how I got into cybersecurity. The bad news is that our Build Security In initiative failed to take off. And the government gave us a lot of money to try to make it take off, and it never really took off. And, and I, I actually left cybersecurity for 10 years and I didn't come back to it until DevOps gave me the opportunity to come back. And, and DevOps, I think, is the best way to build security in. And so I, I'm trying again with the DevSecOps phrase to build security in. Well, I guess we, we're all trying very hard to, to bring 
you know, quality back to cybersecurity or, or, or rename cybersecurity into code quality or software quality. I think that's, that's a very, very fitting terms because good software, good quality software, it doesn't have vulnerability. It has a pass test against low number of vulnerability. Then back on, on the topic, what, what is your view right now of the state of the art of, of where we are with this kind of new initiative that is not that new anymore, that is DevOps, and then the more advanced version is DevSecOps? Where do you think we are as an industry overall? Well, I think if you if you look at sort of the trajectory of where we, we are on a curve of getting to late majority on DevOps, we're still... We haven't even crossed the chasm yet, so to speak. We're still uh, early adopter stage, I think, especially in the enterprise for DevOps. There's a pretty much every team you meet likes to refer to themselves as doing DevOps, but they're not doing true DevOps, in my opinion. If you aren't automatically gating via quality functional testing in your pipeline before the pull request, the merge uh, decision on the pull request then you're not really doing DevOps. Everything, everything, all the advanced DevOps techniques actually sort of build upon that, that automated functional testing. And if you don't have that, you're not doing true DevOps. And a lot of teams claim they're doing DevOps and they don't have that. So, so we're pretty early on. I think most of them want it though. I think most of them realize that and want to do it. Right. And I guess the, the way I see a little bit this, this word is there are business priority. And sometimes DevOps is misleadingly seen as blocking business priority because it's like gating, it's quality software. But it's, it's a perception shift, I think, that we need to do with a lot of organizations that DevOps actually enables and accelerates business decision because when you have a good foundation and a good you know, flow and pipeline pushing more code in, you kind of have those timers and those automation embedded. Would you agree? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's hard sometimes for non-programmers to get this. But uh, by the way, I'm a I'm a coder. I write code every day. I'm the primary author of a dozen open source projects, one of which gets a million downloads a month. So a big project, very popular project. You know, the reality is that you can get both speed, velocity, and quality if you do it right. If so, but the perception is amongst business people is that it's a trade-off that right. if you slow down to get high quality, then you're slowing down. And, and that is actually a little bit true if you've built a, a, a lot of code without that. So, so, you know, it's best to start with a clean slate and build the code with testing right from the start. But if you don't have that, you are going to have to have sp- spend a little spend a little getting the code tested. And the reason you get extra speed is, and this is the part that's really hard for non-developers to get. The reason you get extra speed is that if you want to make a change to the product and, and, and 99% of the product's life is in change in, in add-ons, the, the first thing you ship is, is, is like, it becomes 1% of the functionality eventually, or the 1% of the code, then other 99% comes later. That might be a little hyperbolic, but it, so everything has changed. So you have to optimize for the ability to quickly make change. 
The tests enable you to make changes with confidence. If you make a change over here, it doesn't break something over there. Or you know that if you make a change over here and it is going to break something over there, then it will show you immediately. And so you can then evaluate, oh, well, this change broke 20 things over here. Let's try a different approach over here. Oh, then that only broke three things over here. Let's go with that approach. And so it gives you this ability to confidently make change. Right. And, and I really like what you just said, that is making changes with confidence, because that really built the case of a authority foundation. But then on the other side, you know, you have all the startup, the VC world that really push for getting featuring things out as quick as possible and, and revenue generating as quick as possible, considering where we are, especially right now. How do we, how do we help, especially startup on building secure software because we have the secure startup that maybe are are doing the initial step but 99 other percent of software is written by known security professional and startup don't generally have the fund to get a security professional in so how do we how do we help also those organizations getting that because that's the code that we will inherit five years down the line right Yeah, you got to do it gradually if you have an existing code base and existing team's maturity, and that's pretty much everywhere. So you have to provide a gradual improvement ramp and, and, and coach, get them on that improvement ramp, get them to commit to improving one to three things every 90 days. That's, that's the, the term I use. And the word things I replace with practices, and I have a definition of what a practice is, but I have a whole framework for how you get people to change, how you get whole organizations to change. And this is the framework that I use to do agile transformations and then DevOps transformations and then DevSecOps transformations. And I used it at Comcast, which for European folks is a, is a telecommunications conglomerate, owns Sky, for instance, and, and European folks are probably familiar with Sky, as well as Universal Studios and a bunch of other things. So Um, 10,000 developers, 600 development teams in the organization. Um, by the time I left, we had essentially replaced the old way of doing AppSec with this DevSecOps approach where development teams owned the security of their own products. And not every team was doing it at a high level of maturity when I left. I left because I knew we had created the program, but we had gotten commitment and we'd shown with data measurement that you were able to get one-sixth as many vulnerabilities in production with one-fourth the effort on the security team side, at least, one-fourth the cost. And so that's a 24x ROI. So like, okay, let's get rid of the old way of doing because <laughs> it's a 24x ROI. And, and you know, and 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 we and we did it. It was a it was hard though at first because it broke a lot of the mindsets that a lot of security people have, this gating, policing, auditing guardrails kind of mindset and and that's hard that's really hard i i really like a couple of things you said uh, that i think resonate a lot with what i've seen as well in the field that is a maturity model or a maturity evolution that you can't just simply go and smash a team and say you know tomorrow you'll be devsecops or tomorrow you'll be completely agile and we, and we remove all the control and then you see developer panicking <laughs> or security folk in that particular case panicking And the other stuff that I really love is measurement and measuring everything. Why do you think measurement are so key and fundamental to any kind of transformation or, or any kind of control transformation, I would say? 
Yeah, I, I'm cautious about the use of the word control. The way you used it there, I'm fine with. But, but I, 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 I have a little bit of a look, that's a sidebar. We, we, we can okay. get maybe get back to that <laughs> about control. But why measurement? Um, so, well, first of all, there's a way to do measurement wrong. I actually have a, a slide deck. Uh, it's one of my most popular talks. It's the seven deadly sins of measurement, uh, software software engineering measurement. And um, you know the first sin, and this is sort of like the meta sin, is essentially using metrics to try to directly manipulate behavior. And so, and and it's a subtle difference between. Well, wait, wait a second. You know, you ask the. Metrics are for manipulating behavior. No, no, they're not for manipulating behavior. They're for providing feedback to someone or some group so that they know where they are and they know where to improve. And, and the end result might be similar to manipulating behavior, getting, but the whole idea is that, is that it has to be for the, the thing that the individual or the team that's getting the measurement in order for it to be effective. If it's for management only, then it's, it's, it's not. And, and that's like puppet strings manipulation versus a mirror. And think about um, fitness trackers. People wear these fitness trackers. Um, you know, they, they do it because they get data that helps them to be better, more fit. But imagine if your boss said, we're going to give you $1,000 if you have 10,000 steps every day for 30 days straight. You're going to tie that, that fitness tracker to the, the ceiling fan or the puppy dog. <laughs> you know? and, and, and so it loses its effect. And so it really has to be for the individual in that case or for a team or for a set of teams, a business unit. It, it, you know, the thing it has to be for is essentially for improvement. But that's only one of the three ways that I actually think measurement is important. It, it's to help help you improve. That's, that's the, one of the key ways. That's the first way. The second way is to help you improve the program. So like, you know, cybersecurity folks have gone around saying for years, this is a good practice. This is a good practice. Well, I tried all those good practices at Comcast and I measured them, measured them. And some of them are not good practices. Some of them actually are negative uh, impact on reduction in vulnerabilities in production. And um, some of them are just not worth, the juice is not worth the squeeze. The the practice, the cost of doing the practice is greater than the value you get out of it. And you should do other things. Um, and so, so it also prioritizing that feedback allowed you to say, well, this is obviously the least effort and the most valuable thing. Let's do that first for everybody. And so, so the feedback on the program you use, the, the recommendations you make to each individual development team, that's, that's the reason number two for metrics. And then reason number three is, is to get executive sponsorship. If I couldn't show that the teams that had been through my program had one-sixth as many productions, uh, vulnerabilities in production, I wouldn't have gotten the funding to expand to the next round of teams next year. And so, so in an, especially in an enterprise situation, you have to measure in order to show that you're, that you're doing the right thing, that you're making progress. I like the last point is, is, is proving track record measurements and buying and fundamentally demonstrating what good looks like, but with data backed by data. Because as you said, a lot of the best practice, and I'm air quoting this, is kind of security mythology, I would say. Right. Anecdote, folklore, myth, 
Yes. Yeah. Mythbusters and, and is really what the people, for. And I think security professional has kind of talked about it over the years and, and a story has become <laughs> kind of right. uh, truth if, if you repeat it enough times. And it might have been a good practice pre-DevOps. I mean, you know, the, if, if you have a mindset of gating and policing anyway, uh, you know, uh, then, you know, some practices fit that model. But if you're trying to shift left and you have a lot of those practices that fit the gating model, the, the external gating, not in the pipeline gating. I'm a big fan and, and recommend in pipeline gating. I don't recommend another team gating your work, you know, if you're a development team. And um, so, so a lot of times you just have to sort of uh, recognize that the context has changed and, and you have to do something different with a different context. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of AppSec Phoenix Limited. AppSec helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security problems by using smart data aggregation and complex machine learning software. Discover how AppSec Phoenix helps CISO and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at www.appsecphoenix.com. AppSec Phoenix is the new and smart dev-first way to manage your software vulnerability. Follow the tag, hashtag AppSecSmart. Larry, hold on a second. How are we going to measure our SLA adoption and, and, and how are we going to spend all that money and effort and time that we have put in <laughs> SLAs? <laughs> that would be the question that a lot of folks will ask. Yeah, so, so you know, I, 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 I'm a little hyperbolic on this meeting. I don't really mean <laughs> what I'm about to say completely, but... I, 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 it catches people's attention, and it is there is a, a it is mostly true. It, 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 for the from the development team's perspective, it, it, you know, in particular, basically, I say that the only SLA that matters is one day. It, if if you can't resolve the vulnerability the same day that it's found, then the cost of resolving it goes up exponentially over time, and so. So you really want to stop trying to gather as focus on gathering a complete picture of all your vulnerabilities. That's not important. That's not the bottleneck. It's rapidly fixing them. That's the bottleneck. That's what's that's what needs the focus. And so just throw away all of the high severity and medium severity and low severity vulnerabilities. Just ignore them. Drop them on the floor. Just focus on the critical, and 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 I, and if you if you can't resolve all the criticals in a single sprint as a development team, focus on a subset of the criticals. Basically, I want you to I want you to pick a small slice as you can to be able to commit to resolving that in one to three sprints. And 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 once you resolve those, then change your tooling such that you block anything thing of those categories ever again in the future. And so the whole idea is to get into this, into this, you know, work the backlog down for this small policy dial setting to zero, then lock that policy dial in with a merge blocker in your pull request, and then keep turning that policy dial up over time. If you do this in about a year and a half, just about every development team we coached got to super high levels of maturity and got to this one sixth as many vulnerabilities in production. Oh, and that's great. But uh, on the other hand, you have SRE team, you have patching team, you have other teams that participate and getting all of them on board sometimes can be challenging. And 
the second aspect that I really love about what we discuss is measuring everything and demonstrate success and track level success. So SLA is not the only way to measure resolution time, right? There are other metrics and other things that how how would you build uh, uh, how would you build or how would you suggest uh, to the folks that are listening to build a case for fast fixing or demonstrating fundamentally that the methodology works. Well, How much I, guess, I guess it depends on where the organization is. Now, if the organization has been successful in the past with a gating, external gating, policing, auditing approach, where SLAs are actually being followed, that there isn't a ton of exceptions to the SLAs, then that, that's a different bucket, but that's not what I see most of the time. Most of the time I see security folks yelling into the wind saying the SLA is this and the team's ignoring them. And, and, and if that's the case, then I think my approach is the best way to get them to be in compliance with the SLA. Basically start with just a small slice, commit to getting them to zero within a, a, a one to three sprints and keep turning up the dial. Eventually the dial will be turned up so that everything is less than a day. All the, the, high, the uh, criticals, all the high severity ones, all the medium severity ones, not very often you get to low severity ones, but um, all of those mediums, criticals, and highs all get to, to zero and they get resolved the day that they're found. So if you are an organization that has been successful with SLAs and you, are, you, you actually are really in compliance with them, and, and a lot of times the compliance folks think that the teams are in compliance and they're hiding the, the four bad apps from the, and they're only showing the good app to the, to the security group. And, <laughs> and, and the only reason they're showing the good app is because the security group found it because it, you know, they, it was something they, they, they discovered, you know, uh, you know, if, if, if you really are in compliance though um, with your SLAs, then I would just say, well, just notch the, the critical one down to one day see what happens and, and, and coach teams that you, you have to resolve criticals the day that they're found and then say, okay, now you have to resolve highs the day that they're found. And, and this is going to feel like a burden to the security folks, but actually to the, to the development team, it's like, okay, now I have permission to change our pipeline. So we block the merge request with, with high severity ones. Now I have a mandate from security to go do this. So I can override product saying, Hey, we got to ship production. I've, so now I have to balance these two and, you know, politics will sort of determine which one you do. (laughs) And how would you bring your management team into, into this guided and evolution approach that to support the creativity initiative? Uh, Well, so Management team, high level, you know, meta metrics, macro metrics sort of help with that. And I have a set of visualizations that work for executives and a a slightly different set that work for business unit leaders. And I use that to sort of say, hey, your teams are doing really great. Or, hey, your teams are doing really great on these three things, but they're doing really bad on these seven things. What can we do? Can we put together a plan to, to get them doing good on these other seven things? And then, but for the most part, what I, what the biggest resistance is not the executive and sort of business unit level management level. They're, they're like nine times out of 10, they're like, yeah, we, we support you. Let's go, let's do it. Let's do it. You know? And so, 
So the big resistance is really at a level lower than that. It's really at the product owner or product manager, the folks that are closest to the development team, the folks that determine the backlog that gets worked on in the next sprint. And so I have a really great trick for, you want to hear about this trick? I have a really great trick. This this was one of the biggest discoveries I had during launching and scaling the program at Comcast. We, We had teams commit to adopting one to three practices every 90 days who joined the program. And we only had a 40 some percent success rate with the things they committed to adopting, actually achieving it. And when we analyze it, almost all of the reasons that they didn't achieve it was because the product owner wouldn't let them spend time on modifying the pipeline, do that or whatever during the, they said, you know, the things. So I actually then stopped doing the meetings without the product owner in the room. So we required that the product owner, product manager, a business person, the person who set the backlog, and they have different titles at different organizations and even within the same organization, different uh, teams, <laughs> they had to be in the room. And, and if they didn't show up, we canceled the meeting and, and we let the t- development team go and we rescheduled it. And, and so that, they were like, okay, fine, I'll show up, but I'll do email in the corner. And they would do that. They would do email in the corner. And, and as we're talking, you're seeing the team get enthusiastic about what the practice is. Um, how do you install software composition analysis tools in the pipeline? How do you gate at the pull request merge decision? And the team starts to get excited. They're like, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Yeah, let's, that's the right thing to do. That's the way other teams are doing it. Let's do that. Yeah. And then the, then the product owner in the corner is like, wait, wait a second. What did you just commit to doing? And they start paying attention. <laughs> and, and then at the end of the meeting, I go around the room and I, I, a team has to pick one of three things. They're going to turn one shade of green darker in the next 90 days, which means basically improve it a, a significant notch in my model. And so I, I go around the room and I ask everyone in the room, do you support this plan? This one to three things you're committing to. And support means that you'll do everything in your power to see that the team achieves its goals. And I start with the product people in the room. I say, do you support this plan? And I'm taking notes and I'm recording who said what, right? So they know there's going to be a Yeah, accountability. Because that works on business people and product people. And, And often they say no. No, that's too much. We've got these features we committed to. I committed my boss and they committed to their boss. we got to get them out this quarter. And I'm like, well, what would, could we modify about this, this plan so that you would support it? Well, let's not do those three things. Let's only do two of those three. And let's not do it for all of our apps. Let's just do it for these three key apps. And, and I'm like, oh, team, are you okay with that modification of the commitment, the plan? Okay, great. And I basically pre-negotiate the commitment with the product owner during that. And then I keep following up. The coach who's resigned to that team keeps following up over the 90 days to make it happen. The success rate for commitments went from 40-some percent to 93% um, after we started requiring the product people to be in the room when they made, when the team made the commitment. I, I like that. I like the, the, the working together because I've seen a lot of transformation that start from the bottom, but then get choked get cut at the at the head if you want so without involving the business people the transformation everybody from a dev team get excited but then you then you don't get the commitment up, up level and you don't get the time to actually implementing because ultimately is as i like to say is a risk trade-off is what risk do you want to introduce versus how much time do you want to spend reducing those kind of 
race opportunity to end up in college, whatever you want. But you need to bring. I, I don't really, really, really balance risk well. I, I mean, they're really. They, they get sort of sucked into this these meetings where they have to commit to roadmap and and that drives them they, they made a commitment they're going to do it they're going to accept the risk and and they really aren't making good risk evaluations when they're, it's it's too emotional to them and and so I think you need this sort of external force to sort of get them to look at that particular risk. And I'm talking about the people at the lowest levels, the higher level business unit leaders and, and executives generally do evaluate risk better. That, that's a characteristic I think of, of getting promoted to is that you actually are better at evaluating risks um, and thinking three steps ahead instead of just for now. But you still need the middle management to drive those transformation forward because they are the gating or that could be the gating process of, of a process like this or the actually green light process. Correct. To yeah. Right. Right. So you don't even get in to meet the team unless the manager right. is basically, we're going to do this. My my other business unit owner, peer of mine, has already gotten ahead of me. And now we have a contest going. In fact, that's part of my program. <laughs> it with these metrics, right? We have a contest going and the loser of the contest has to wear a bunny suit during Easter week. We actually had that happen. I had, I had two I want to see the picture. <laughs> uh, I, I, they know they wouldn't allow me to take any pictures and put that in the record, but I can't even say who the two business units are. Um, uh, but yeah, they, uh, one of the business unit leaders challenged the other business unit leader, the one with the most improvement in the next 90 days, you know, the loser of that, the least of that had to wear. And that just got a lot of attention that just gamified. It made it fun for everyone. And although you did have some developers say, hey, we're going to sandbag. So our leader is the one who has to wear the bunny suit. But that didn't actually happen. They actually tried hard to make it happen, you know. So. No, that, that's, that's encouraging the wrong behavior. <laughs> right, right, right. Have you seen the Dilbert where he says, they say, we're going to, the, the manager says, we're going we're gonna to pay you $500 for every, every, uh, every bug. And, and Dilbert immediately gets up and starts walking out of, the, out of the room. I might have this a little bit wrong. And the manager's like, where, where are you going? He's, and, 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 and he's like, Dilbert's like, I'm going to go write myself a minivan before lunch. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, so. Nice. So measurement is key, management involvement is key. If now that they're coming towards the time, if you can leave everybody with kind of a key takeaway, which one would be the top three kind of things that you will encourage giving our audience in if they want to move towards a better maturity level, which what practice will, will they adopt or which methodology would they adopt? Yeah, I, I think mindset is probably the, the first place. So I'm going to give you one mindset of the three, and then I'll give you two other things, the category. The first mindset is, is stop thinking that developers don't care about security. That is absolutely not true. I have never found that to be true. You might find a, a handful of them here and, the, here and there, but every individual development team has at least one person who's, who cares about engineering excellence. And, and for the most part, the majority of the engineers on every development team care about engineering excellence. And they know, they absolutely know 
that if their product gets hacked, that is a sign that they they aren't excellent engineers and they don't ever want that to happen. And so you have to hook that desire for engineering excellence. And, and, and that's the hook you use to sort of get them to care about security in, in a way that sort of aligns with you, the way you as a security person care about security. The second thing is you have to think of this. So that's number one. Number two, you asked for three takeaways. Number two is you have to think of every individual team as a set on a separate spot in the journey to maturity. If, if you try to sort of like blanket, like policy your way out into this, you, you'll never get there because every team is at a different starting point. Every team has a different context and different issues. And so you really need to coach every individual team. And then the third thing, and these all lead to each other, is this idea of coaching. And so, so you have to have a coach. You have to hire coaches. And the kind of person I mean by a coach is not someone who used to be a security auditor because they're just used to, or a pen tester, they're just used to telling development teams their baby's ugly all day long. <laughs> I'm, talking about, I'm talking about a Ted Lasso kind of coach. Ted Lasso is the name of a character in a TV series by uh, Apple, Apple Plus. And if you haven't seen it, you should really go see it. Um, he is hired to coach, he's an American football, you know, that, that oblong shaped thing for you Europeans, <laughs> yeah, you know, American football not coach. Done, not done here in Europe. <laughs> not done here in Europe. Right. <laughs> Who's hired to coach a European football team. He knows nothing about European football. He knows nothing about soccer, as we call it here in the States. But he, you know what he knows about? He knows about getting the best thing out of individuals. He knows how to get a team to work together. He knows how to get a team all aligned and working in the same direction. And, and so he uses those skills. And that's what you need. You need to stop being the police and the gatekeepers. You need to hire people that are going to be coaches and work with individual teams. By the way, this scales very nicely. People go, oh, I can't talk to every individual team. We'll go nuts. We don't have enough staff. Well, think about this. It's a 90-minute workshop every 90 days that the, the coach has to perform. If you do 10 of these a week, 90-minute workshops, you're still only up to 15 hours a week. That still leaves you another, you know, uh, 20 hours a week plus uh, of, of time to do other things. And there's 10 weeks in a quarter. Well, there's really 13, but you have vacation and stuff like that. So 10 uh, workshops a week times 10 weeks and a quarter, one coach can handle a hundred development teams using this framework that I'm talking about. No, and that, that's, I think those are three kind of key points that points back to a change in kind of mindset and mentality, because I think that's what's missing. That's, that's you, you hit the nail on, on, on the coffin together with measurement and, and getting getting drive and great measurement around everything that you do as a practice and and self-imposed kind of based on the measurement, self-imposed kind of objective. Uh, that is that is where I like um, I like team to be. But you know, coaching different data and different mindset are the three kind of key element that I keep on banging from. And I think we sometimes we agree and disagree. <laughs> well if I had if I had to put a like a meta message under this, I would, it would be measure everything. I mean, you can't, you can't do any of what I said without having the measurement to show that it's effective. You need the measurement to actually help the team improve. 
You have to measure their adoption of practices. You have to measure their success rate on the commitments they make. That's sort of very process kind of measurement. And then you have to measure their, their, their median time to resolve for, for vulnerabilities. So measurement is sort of an underlying concept of everything. So I agree with you there. It, it's probably the most important thing, actually. Yes. All right, brilliant. Larry, if you want to leave as well, we have a tradition here on the podcast that we, we like to wrap up the whole conversation with a positive message. I guess we, we give three takeaways. Now let's let's give a positive message that this is is doable and this is <laughs> well I, I guess the positive message is that any organization, no matter how large, no matter the compliance situation, I have I have done this for any any organization can start on the path to DevSecOps and get there. It it's a multi-year journey for larger organizations. It took me five years at Comcast to get halfway there and halfway is even a little generous because I only had half the teams in the program, but some of them hadn't been in the program very long, but we had commitment after five years to get the other half teams. Management had decided to invest in this. And and that's when I left is basically I knew I had achieved the goal. Any organization, honestly, I, I really do mean this. If you think your organization is so different that you can't do this, that's wrong. Any organization can pull this off. Right. No, that's brilliant. And for the folks that don't know you yet, where they can find you, where they can see more about the framework that you mentioned, where they can they can listen you speak or hear you more. Give us kind of where they can find you. <laughs> where is Larry? So, yes. Yeah, so my day job, I work for a, a tool vendor in the application security space called Contrast Security. And I do workshops, basically, like the one I described in this in this podcast. Um, my side project, and Contrast is very supportive of me in doing this side project, is called Transformation.dev, um, and we have a software product uh, that we're that we're in alpha on. And uh, you could go to Transformation.dev and sign up to to be a beta tester when when we get to beta for the software product. Um, basically, it's a it's a tool that will get you on this coaching pat- plan, this coaching pattern. Brilliant, folks! It's been a brilliant conversation, Larry. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I, we always had this conversation on the side. I, I wanted really to bring it on because there are there are very there are quite a few key points that I think anybody can benefit on. Everybody, thank you for listening in. Thank you for staying safe. And please remember that, as Larry was saying, DevSecOps is achievable. We can change our mindset, but we can also go faster, forward, better if we all collaborate together. This is Francesco, your host, Larry. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everybody. Stay safe. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com. 